Let us pray. Lord, your word goes forth from your mouth and does not return empty, but accomplishes everything that you intend. Now plant your word within us, Lord, and pour out your spirit upon us so that we may bear good fruit and people will see and know your name for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It is time for our next reading. And Julie's going to come up and do that. And that's from Luke 6:39 to 42. You'll find that not only in your bulletin, but on the screen as well as read. Yes. Then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but a student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We're all worried about somebody else and we don't look at ourselves. This morning we have another special speaker. I was a little concerned this morning because I didn't see him, but I saw him sneak in the back. So I, I because I hadn't prepared a message for this. <laughs> Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm well, and you? I'm well. I'm going to use the podium. You're going to use the podium. Just that, fine. That, all I right. I can do the clicky thing with the paddle. I'll with this. You can use that. All right. My children are especially difficult this morning, so I told them that I would record this for them. So just give me a minute to get my notes all set up here. Get my little recorder up. So uh, the gospel lesson today comes from the book of Luke. But before we get into the real meaning of the lesson, I'd like to give you a little bit, uh, little bit of context. I like to call it context. Some of you might call them fun facts or Bible trivia, but I think they're valuable just the same. Most historians say that the Gospel of Luke uh, was written around 60 or 70 AD, which if Jesus was crucified around 30 AD, means it was written between 30 and 40 years after the fact. Now the Gospel was written by Luke, who himself uh, is a bit of a mysterious figure. He was not one of the disciples, uh, so as far as we know, he never had the chance to meet Jesus or listen to him speak. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of biography on him. But he is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Uh, and if you're not looking for him, you might actually miss him. Uh, Luke is mentioned in the book of Colossians, in the book of 2 Timothy, and the book of Philemon. Uh, these are letters from the Apostle Paul to different people in different churches in the area. Uh, and he always ends them, he often ends them with these little salutations that I know that I kind of breeze through, where he says, oh, say hello to this person, and greetings to this person, and so-and-so is with me, and did I leave my coat there? <laughs> all those sorts of things. And Luke is mentioned in these three books as one of Paul's traveling companions, uh, someone that was traveling with Paul and was uh, likely with him near the very end. And in Colossians, it says he was a doctor or a physician. 
So we know that he was a friend and traveling companion of Paul. We also know that he was an educated man. Now, biblical scholars are also pretty certain that he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts at about the same time, uh, most likely in Rome, most likely while Paul was in prison. And although he did not have the benefit of having witnessed the teachings of Jesus firsthand, uh, like Matthew or John or Peter, as we know through the book of Mark, uh, we find out how he gets his information at the very beginning beginning of the book of Luke. This is kind of the source material. So many have undertaken to draw up an account of the teachings that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know with certainty of the things that have been taught. Now, there are two important points in this little piece of text. First, uh, we learned that Luke was able to assemble his gospel through careful investigation so that he could take all of the different stories that were going around about the life of Jesus and come up with an orderly account of what had happened during Jesus' time on earth. Second, he mentions this person Theophilus, uh, both here and again in the book of Acts, as the intended audience of the text. Now, because Theophilus means friend of God, uh, and because these letters like this were often fairly public documents, many people believe that Theophilus was not an actual person, uh, but is rather a target audience. However, he does refer to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, uh, and most excellent was a term typically used and reserved for high-ranking officials, uh, often Roman officials, uh, which suggests that the original recipient, whoever this was, it, originally intended to, uh, may have been uh, a powerful Gentile ruler. Uh, and this second recipient's also likely Gentiles, which is a big deal if we believe that Luke himself was in fact a Gentile. Um, meaning that this is the only book of the Bible, uh, Old Testament or New Testament, written by a Gentile believer uh, to Gentile believers. And that, uh, that is us. And so all this to say that the Gospel of Luke was not only God-inspired and directed, uh, like all the books of the Bible, but it was also a carefully researched and orderly biography of Jesus, written in a clear and detailed way so that people like Luke and like the most excellent original recipient and everyone here today uh, who were, did not have the benefit of eyewitness to Jesus' life can have all the facts that we need to understand the good news of the Gospel. Now we're in Luke chapter 6, uh, where the lesson of today takes place. It's about a quarter of the way through the book of Luke, through Luke's story of Jesus. We start with one of the most detailed versions of the Christmas story in the first two chapters. Jesus is baptized uh, in chapter 3. He's tempted by Satan in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he starts calling his disciples. And now in chapter 6, we find Jesus in Galilee, somewhere around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And so you can take, a, there's a Google image map there. A little red dot up at the top uh, is where Jesus is believed to have done this sermon. Uh, Jerusalem is right down at the bottom, and that teardrop that you can see uh, is the Sea of Galilee. So many scholars put him somewhere near Capernaum when he was saying this. It's about 195 kilometers uh, away from Jerusalem, which is about a two-hour drive. Uh, so essentially from here in Fredericton to the Nova Scotia border, just to give you a sense of scope, how far away he was from Jerusalem. Here's a 
Here's the Google Street View. For those of you who kind of want to know what it looks like, Google Street View is never a very flattering image of a location. Uh, this is near the Mount of Beatitudes. Here's a slightly nicer picture uh, of the Mount of Beatitudes, which is believed to be where this sermon took place, or in this general area. For your uh, information, where did I have that today? Um, the Catholic Church has a beautiful little chapel up there, uh, and it's currently 23 degrees with 40% humidity, winds 10 kilometers an hour and partly cloudy on the Mount of Beatitudes. Just in case you like to sit and close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to be sitting there listening to Jesus with Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot and the whole gang, there's a, there's a little visualization for you to cling on to. So anyway, Jesus has been teaching, he's been healing, and he's been calling his disciples. It says in Luke 6, before the lesson for today, that people had come from all over to be healed by Jesus. And in verse 18 and 19, it says that he indeed healed them all. And immediately after this, he turns to his disciples and delivers what is known as the Sermon on the Plain, or the Sermon on the Plateau. And the lesson from today comes from that sermon. So, in this lesson, Jesus gives three analogies, or little mini-stories. I think that the love of a good story uh, is a universal aspect of the human experience. Uh, and I also think it is one of the surest signs of God's love for us and his desire to connect with us that when he did come down and spend some time among us, uh, he used stories to teach us. And so there are three little analogies that he uses. In the first analogy, he says this, can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Now, different translations say ditch or pit or even cistern, which is kind of a, a well uh, apparatus. But whatever you call it, the point is pretty clear. Uh, if uh, the blind person lead another blind person, things will not turn out well for either of them. The second analogy, he says this, students are not greater than their teacher. But the student who is fully trained will become like their teacher. As a teacher myself, this is a handy verse to keep in my pocket, although I've never had to use it. Um, the point here is, again, fairly clear. Uh, while you are a student, while you are learning, you're not greater than the person who is teaching you. Uh, and so although with time and training, you will be like your teacher. And in the third, he says this. And why worry about a speck? in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own. How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. This is the longest of the analogies and maybe the most ridiculous. Um, the translation uses the word log. This says it's, it's log. Uh, and other translations use plank. A log in your eye or a plank in your eye. But neither of these words really do justice to the original intention. The original Greek word was actually dokos, uh, which is a term for a beam or a joist or a log on which planks in the house rest. Uh, and so Jesus is essentially saying, don't worry about the little piece of straw or wood in your friend's eye. Well, there's a load-bearing beam hanging out of your own eye. The word hypocrite is used as well, which is someone who does one thing and says another. The original word hypocrites uh, was a common term for Greek theater actors who would wear masks uh, to hide their true identity and put on a certain face. But we know as the term hypocrite as someone who says one thing and does another. And we are told that if we want to help our friend get the speck out of their eye, we need to first take the load-bearing beam out of our own eye. And so Jesus tells three stories with a common theme. Uh, 
In each of these little stories, we have people who think that they know better than someone else while ignoring their own shortcomings. Uh, a blind person who tries to help another blind person, even though he himself is blind. Someone who thinks they are greater than their teacher, even though they are just a student. Uh, or a person who wants to get a bit of dust out of their friend's eye, even though they have a load-bearing beam coming out of their own eye. Now, these are clearly ridiculous scenarios, uh, particularly the last one. I mean, people don't just walk around with load-bearing beams hanging out of their faces. I mean, you could baffle a room full of physicists and biologists and sociologists with that one if that actually happened. Uh, but they all point to a way of thinking that is surprisingly common. For example, I want you all to reflect on your own driving skills. Or if you don't drive now, I want you to think about how you will be, how you will drive uh, in the future. And I'm going to ask you a question uh, that I don't want you to answer out loud, uh, but I want you to answer in your head. Now, do you think you are a below average driver or an above average driver? I'll give you a minute to think about that. When people have uh, been asked this question in the past, contrary to whoever it was that said this, uh, the vast majority of people say that they are an above average driver, which is statistically impossible. It's not possible for everybody to be an above average driver. And so there are many people out there who think that they are above average drivers, but are in fact below average drivers, and who will probably very gladly sit behind you and give you lots of feedback about your driving. Here's another story from my own life. We had a leaky hot water faucet at, uh, at our house. And I say, you know what? I can probably figure it out. And so I go under there and I start turning nozzles and suddenly the nozzle comes off in my hand and hot water is spraying out at me. Well, Candace comes in, fixes it in about five minutes, gets the water to stop, and then we have a plumber come in and he is able to deal with it uh, the rest of the way. I thought that I knew something about plumbing. I thought I was an above average naive plumber, but I was not. Uh, I was unaware of my own problems. Now, uh, we often hear this passage, especially once the word hypocrite is dropped down, and we get in our minds people who are aware of their shortcomings, uh, but feel free to lead others regardless. Uh, we think uh, about all the times in the Gospels where Jesus uh, challenges the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, he says things like they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so we might think that just because we're not willfully deceiving someone about our own limitations, uh, that this verse doesn't apply to us. But I don't think we can let ourselves off that easily. Many years of psychological research has demonstrated that human beings are notoriously bad at evaluating their own abilities. Because to protect our sense of self, we're often motivated to see ourselves in the best possible light. And that makes us biased observers of our own thoughts and behaviors. And quite often we do this without any kind of ill intention. We're not wringing our hands trying to trick people. Uh, we are unaware quite often that we're doing this. And so we might not be aware that we're blind. We might not be aware of who is the teacher and who is the student. We might not be aware of the load-bearing beams hanging off of our faces. But Jesus instructs us to take these logs out of our own eyes. How can we 
do this? How can we remove these load-bearing beams as Jesus instructs us to do uh, if we're not aware that they are there? I believe the solution is to pray that God would allow us the ability to see ourselves as he sees us and to see other people as he sees them. Part of the reason that we tend to be blind to our own issues is that at some unconscious level quite often, we're scared that if we acknowledge those issues, we will become lesser people, less valuable people, less lovable people, that weirdo with the beam in his eye. And so rather than acknowledge and remove the beam, we pretend it isn't there. We ignore it and we try to deceive others. But in the end, we end up mostly deceiving ourselves. Have you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a toddler? They're very bad at it. They try to hide themselves by hiding behind curtains with their feet sticking out. I think that's what it's like. When we have beams in our own eyes, but we try to hide it from everybody else, we're only really deceiving uh, ourselves. But the great thing about God is that he already knows the beams are there. And he loves us anyway. In Psalm 139, it says, Lord, you have examined me. You know all about me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You know my thoughts before I think them. You know where I go and where I lie down. You know everything I do. Lord, even before I say a word, you already know it. You are all around me, in front of me, and in back. You have put your hand on me. Your knowledge is amazing to me. It is more than I can understand. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And in the book of Luke, later on in chapter 12, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God loves the below average drivers. God loves people who are bad at plumbing. God loves you whether you know how to tie a bowline or not. And so because God loves us, no matter what, we are freed from the pressure to pretend we are perfect. And we can work with other people similarly freed by the love of God to get all of this lumber out of our faces so that we have the luxury of helping other people with their specs. So, 20-something-ish A.D., on a sunny hill somewhere north of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said these things. Luke found out about it. He wrote it down and sent it off to the most excellent Theophilus and his contemporaries, or their contempor contemporaries. Those words have been preserved and translated, and about 2,000-ish years later, they have been read here this morning. So what does that mean for us, uh, here and now? As human beings, it's comforting to see ourselves in the best possible light. To think we're a good driver, even if we're not a good driver. To think we're a good plumber, even if we don't know anything about plumbing. To think we know best, even if we don't. To pretend we know with confidence what should be done, even if we are unsure. And we may be afraid deep down that by saying, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, uh, we'll become less valuable, less lovable people. On the other hand, another way of deceiving ourselves is for our own protection is by putting ourselves in a worse light than we deserve. We may have ideas, but think they're not worth much. Uh, we may have talents, but we're not sure they are good enough. And to protect ourselves from potential judgment, we hide our lamps under bowls. We avoid opportunities to serve because we are afraid to fail. 
But God knows us. He knows our limitations better than we do. He knows our strengths better than we do. Ask God to show you how he sees you, where you are weak and where you are strong. And know that no matter what he shows you, he loves you all the same. And not only this, but he has called us to be part of a community of people who also have strengths and weaknesses that work together and complement each other for God's glory. I'm going to end with one more passage from the book of Romans. This is a God-inspired book written by Luke's traveling companion, Paul. In chapter 12, it says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. To God be the glory now and forever. Amen.